are back with another episode of the Unison Church podcast. Super excited for today's episode. One disclaimer, uh, I haven't been feeling well this week, and so my voice might sound a little bit different. Uh, you might hear um, just some stuff in the in the background if I have to turn away and cough, but um, we should be able to get through this thing. But that's my disclaimer, so we're going to be continuing. We're almost done with the First Corinthians podcast. In fact, this is the final episode uh, that's going to be an interview. We'll probably do maybe one more, maybe two more episodes after this. But this is my last interview, and so I'm excited for our guest today. Um, Today I'll be interviewing a really good friend of mine, Andrew. And um, Andrew and I grew up together uh, in this church, and we just had a lot of good memories. And I was lucky enough that he was in the life group with me where we went through 1 Corinthians. So I'll give him a chance just to introduce himself and talk about his uh, time at Pond Hill so far. Thank you for having me, Sean. Hi, my name is Anthony Masood. Um, I've, I've been coming to Pond Hill for, I believe, for almost 30 years now. Yeah. Um, I've been coming here since, I believe, 1996 or 1997, right when I was like probably four or five years old after my uh, parents got divorced. So I am uh, happy to be a member here. Yeah, man, it's a it's a joy to have us now. Andrew is a special guest, um, not just because he's Andrew, but also because um, Andrew has aspirations of going into um, church work himself as well. And so he's actually preached for us a couple times here at Pond Hill, and is an avid studier of the Bible. Um, and so uh, I'm happy that we get to have this opportunity. But um, if you haven't seen this series, we've been going through First Corinthians, and it started by just reading the book. Then I kind of gave some of my takeaways, and then I've been interviewing people that went through this life group. So we basically took a small group from my church, and we walked through the book of First Corinthians. We had a little bit of guidance from from a Jenny Allen study on Right Now Media, um, which we were kind of using as a talking point. But really, the the focus was getting into the scripture, and before we even um, watched uh, Alan's video. We just um, talked about what we found in scriptures. So we got the opportunity, not just to discuss what the content of the scripture, but also talk about, hey, what does this mean for my life? How is this hitting me? Um, what does this mean in light of my current situations, my maybe struggles, things like that? And so we really got to do the hard work of diving into God's word together. And so I had a really good time. And uh, what we're doing is we're kind of asking these four questions. So we'll start out with the first one, which just was, what was your favorite part of 1 Corinthians? My favorite part of 1 Corinthians was when they were talking about spiritual gifts. And what I just love about that part is that um, we are one body of we are one body of Christ, where Christ is the head and we are the body of Christ. And without like a specific spiritual gift, then people then you can't really like work together and won't be able to successfully um follow god like so let's just say for example like if you have one person that's speaking tongues but don't have another person to organize anything then you'll probably ask yourself well how are we gonna organize this person to go out and to speak in tongues and to prophesy and so, or another example would be like, um, if like Sean mentioned one of his podcasts, like 
if you if you don't have somebody to plan the music for Sunday, and you just have somebody preach, then where would uh, worship music and all that happen? Sure. So this is another example about why um, when we why it's important for every spiritual gift because without it, the body of Christ cannot function properly. Yeah, absolutely, dude. You know, one of my favorite things you just said was um, if we don't have all the different spiritual gifts working together, how are we supposed to follow God? And what I like about that is in 1 Corinthians, specifically we're talking here about 12 through 14, where um, Paul uses what people call the body metaphor, right? Where mm-hmm. um, where the body's kind of asking itself, like, you know, if all the parts of the body were ears, then where would the seeing be? Mm-hmm. If all the parts of the body were, you know, eyes, then where would the hearing be? So it's like everybody's necessary for the body of Christ. But I like how you put it there because I feel like a lot of times we talk about our personal ability to follow God. Like how is Andrew following God or how is Michael Sean following God, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but what you mentioned there is how are we as the church, as like a corporate unit supposed to follow God? So what do you think about that? Like that we don't just have a responsibility for our own selves to be following God, but also that we have a responsibility to help the church as a whole follow God. I believe that um, it's important for us to help everybody in the church because um if we don't function properly then the church itself cannot function properly yeah and and god says to serve one another and to help one another yeah so um that's why i believe that um it's important to like when you're a member of the church is to help support one another and but as long as you're following god though yeah yeah, yeah, for sure. In um, 1 Corinthians 12, there's one passage that I thought is really pertinent to this conversation. It starts in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with great honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, given greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the member would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And that's exactly what you just said, right? Is that like we need to be looking out for each other because we all have this responsibility for each other, right? That's really good. So um, give me some examples of like how, I mean, you do, you do have a couple roles here at Pond Hill. You, there's a couple teams that you're involved with. Tell us about some of that. And now that you've kind of read through and studied First Corinthians, how are, how are you fitting into that bigger picture of the body of Christ? So one way I'm fitting into the body of Christ is, um, is, is, um, is by serving on the cleaning committee. And me and my mom come to clean the church like once a month. And if we don't have people, like, to serve to clean, then it would just be, like, one person constantly cleaning, like, basically, like, every week. And yeah. I know that could be tiring for the person or people. But um, but when you have more than one person to sign up for something, then it would be easier to, like, to manage that 
situation mm-hmm. or that spot. Yeah, share so that, the load. Yeah, so that way, um, you know, that way everybody can rotate. Mm-hmm. And also another way I serve is um, with the kids ministry where um, my mom teaches and I help her out. And um, and we're able to rotate because we have other people to sign up for it. But if we didn't have people to sign up to help, then it would just be one person constantly doing the kids ministry. Yeah. And um, and again, that could be really tiring because um, um, because it takes more than one or two people to function in a certain ministry, and and if we don't have a team working together, then it would um, then the the ministry would probably just fall and just not work anymore. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, and I think that, you know, there are some both, I feel like both of the things you just mentioned might be considered by some to be like dirty jobs of mm-hmm. the church, right? Like, you know, like who, who wants to be cleaning the bathrooms, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, on a, on a, even if it is only once a month, right. Or, or even, I feel like sometimes people have that attitude with kids too, because kids ministry is a little draining like sometimes the kids are crazy right and Mm -hmm. it and it takes a lot out of you to work with them it's also like i feel like working with kids is a huge blessing too because kids are so much fun as well but but there are some like they've already raised their own kids and they're like not about to go help raise somebody else's kids right because they feel like Mm -hmm. they've done it already and and you stepping into those roles and and like you said you know sharing a little with other people um you're doing exactly what this verse says, where you're giving honor to what some might consider the less honorable, right? And um, yeah, it's indispensable. We need that. So um, I always like to ask this question. This is one of my favorite things to ask people because I just love the way that scripture comes alive when we read it and it's like you may have read i'm sure that you've read first corinthians before like you've said you've been coming to church for 30 years i know Mm -hmm. for a fact that about four or five years ago we had a sermon series that was preaching through um first corinthians so i'm sure you read it then and Mm -hmm. um what what this time though was the most surprising part for you like what coffee caught you off guard um i would say what caught me off guard is I would say the head covering because um, in the Muslim religion, they say that uh, when a woman goes to pray or when they have to go around in public, they got to cover their body and cover their head. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul was saying that um, when a, a woman should cover her head because she can't pe- preach, or um or isn't allowed to do the same type of functions that um a man in the church would be allowed to do hmm. um so i just find that surprising because um well if a woman needs to cover her head then wouldn't that be against what god was saying where where god says it's not based on how you look it's based on the what what's on the heart and hmm. based on your um, basically what your spirit is. I love that. That's cool. That's surprising. And it's a question. 
first of all, we should explain this. This is especially relevant for you too, right? Because your dad is Muslim, right? And you mm-hmm. have a stepmom as well. Mm-hmm. That I'm sure does she cover her head when she goes out? Yes. Yes. Okay. Cool. So this is something that you've had. You actually have to think through because mm-hmm. you you have loved ones that um, would literally do this. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I wonder, <clears throat> is it confusing? To have read that passage, right, where mm-hmm. Paul is suggesting head coverings, it seems, mm-hmm. and then in church, we don't do head coverings, really, right? Mm-hmm. Like, none of the women here are wearing head coverings. Even if they're on stage or singing or praying or mm-hmm. um, or talking about something, they're not really wearing head coverings. So yep. we've never really taken that to be um, something that's relevant for our moment now. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps in that culture, could have been a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like what you said there because you're like, you know, I know that the whole of Scripture teaches that um, God doesn't look on outward appearance, right? He looks at the heart, which is a which is a something from Samuel and the anointing of David, that mm-hmm. that particular verse. But even even beyond that, you know, there's other places in Scripture where Jesus is concerned about people's hearts in the gospel, constantly with the Pharisees, right? It's not about these outward shows; it's about your heart like do you do you really want to follow god and therefore love other people and serve the lord and you know fill in the gaps at church and stuff like that and so so there's some, there's like when you encounter a passage like this it's like oh wait i don't i don't see how this jives with the rest of scripture does that make sense is that kind of what you're feeling yeah yeah so you're right to say like to do that and i think that's the first thing we should always do when we encounter something in scripture, it's okay to say this thing in scripture doesn't, it seems out of place to me. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a couple of reasons something could be out of place though. Like there's a lot of reasons actually why something could be out of place. One of those is like a cultural difference. And I think that's what most people do with this passage. You say, you know, in that culture, mm-hmm. it was a sign of purity maybe to mm-hmm. be uh, wearing head covering. Some people talk specifically about how in Corinth there was a, a lot of women that were um, temple prostitutes, and some have theorized that maybe not wearing head covering, um, you might be identified as like a temple prostitute. Like maybe there was something about the way that they were having their hair or doing their hair up or whatever um, that signified that they were a, a temple prostitute. So some have recommended um, that interpretation. I think that Paul is not actually mandating that women should wear head coverings. Um, I kind of take, um, we're talking about 1 Corinthians 11 here. I kind of take this, and this is mostly based on the end. I take it as Paul's kind of like playing with the idea a little bit. I don't think he really cares that much whether women wear head coverings or not because of um, how I would interpret the very end. In starting in verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for women to pray to God with their head uncovered? And then he says, doesn't even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. I don't really feel like he's super serious there, because like, even just in those short verses, he's like, should a woman pray to God with her head uncovered? And he's like, well, usually men have short hair, but men have long hair, and maybe their hair is the covering. And then if... Anybody wants to argue about this, we just don't have another custom in the in the in the church. So we don't have like a different way of doing things. Um, and so I feel like, like just right there, he kind of 
rapid fires through some different things. And I don't, I don't really think that, that Paul has an issue with, uh, with head covering so much. Um, I don't think it's that important. Actually, the point of this passage really is to signify how important both men and women are in the church and to give liberty to both men and women to prophesy in the church. And so I think especially, um, you know, saying like women should prophesy in a head covering, it may be that just her putting on the head covering is giving her liberty in the church to prophesy. Maybe it's silencing um, some men that were saying that women needed to cover their head and they didn't want to cover their head. So maybe Paul is saying, hey, cover your head just so you could be in the church and prophesy without causing an issue. Could be that too. I feel like there's a lot of different interpretations here. But my big thing here for me comes in verse 8 where it says, For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was a man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why woman... uh, this is why woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes from woman, and all things come from God. So one of the things that I think is stark in uh, Islam is that there is a clear differentiation between, like, if you are a man, you have a level of authority and responsibility that a woman does not. And there's definitely like a hierarchy there, religiously speaking, right? Like the man is like set up as like the pedestal of the household. Um, And in Christianity, even if women are being told to wear a head covering, it's not because they should be um, subjugated to the man. Um, We're we're both to submit to each other. Um, And Paul actually gets into this earlier in in 1 Corinthians, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 where both men and women should be submitting to each other. But um, uh, I, I do think that Paul is subverting a little bit what head coverings might have represented back then. Does that make sense? I just talked for a long time. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I guess it, um, I guess it makes sense. But what I believe also is that um, I believe that, uh, like, when a woman, you know, when a woman goes to pray or when a woman goes out in public, she shouldn't need to, like, dress up nor cover her head. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that you're right, for sure. I don't like how often we give commands to men specifically mm-hmm. and we give commands to women specifically. Because if you take the whole of the Bible, I mean, there are a couple commands that are given to women or men individually but like 99 percent of the commands given in the bible old testament and new testament are given to the whole assembly both men and women Mm -hmm. um and then also the ones the individual commands that are given to men or given to women are are commands that the assembly in general is given anyway so like in let's say proverbs 31 if you're to take that as uh, this list of virtues that every woman should have, right? Um, when when the woman is told to be wise, that's something that men are told to do too. When the woman is told to be hardworking, something the men is told to. When the woman is told to be modest, mm-hmm. men are told to be modest too. Mm-hmm. So I don't love when we break that up and we kind of single women out for something uh, that we don't single men out for, and vice versa. There's a there's a time for. I mean, we just, we just had men's life group and ladies' life group. There's a time to 
speak to men, but I think that's more on a relationship level. It's not because men are really called to do that much more than women are called to do. And and there are a couple of unique things, yeah, but the vast majority of things when, when we're talking about our relationship with God or our service in the church are not unique to men or women. They're just some things we should all do. So I don't like the singling out of women, especially about dress, which is something that happens a lot. It's like we want to talk about women about how they're dressing. And it's like, I get it, but at the same time, like, why can't we just talk about modesty and what that means for men and women together instead of singling out women and potentially making them feel really bad? Um, so that's kind of my takeaway from this passage. Excellent. So now we're getting into um, similar, you know, similarly contentious issues. I mean, if you are reading first corinthians anybody out there if you're reading first corinthians like you are going to run up against some challenging portions of scripture because it's a very confrontational letter right so when you were reading what would you say is the most challenging part of first corinthians for you i would say the most challenging for me is favoritism and singleness Mm. only because um for me it's like uh um, I do my best not to show favoritism. Like, um, like the other day, like I, I told my I told my nieces like how are my favorite nieces doing, and then one of my nieces told me we're your only nieces. <laughs> but um, but uh, but I do my best not to show favoritism to anybody because um, uh, because in the Bible it says that showing favoritism is not good. Yeah, because it's like saying that you're giving like one, giving like more privileges more to the other, and you're not being like fair. Mm-hmm. Or for me, it's like um, since I only have right now, since I only have two nieces and a nephew, I can't. Re- I don't want to pick like if somebody asks me which one's your favorite. I don't, really don't want to tell them. I I really want to tell them I don't have a favorite. Right, right. Because or if somebody asks me like. Um, who's your favorite parent or who's your favorite sibling or who's your favorite relative. But in reality, I do my best not to show like more like favor toward one or the other. I do my best to show everybody treat equally. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it's like for me, like for favoritism, it's hard because one might like, especially for my nieces and my nephew well my nieces especially because one one of my nieces might say like hey i want this and uh and then the and if i give that to the to the niece then the other niece say well i want this mm-hmm. so it's like then so it's like um, i'm torn like okay should i give the other niece something because they gave the other niece something sure sure yeah and then also um singleness is hard for me too because I've been single for pretty much for almost 30 years now. And I know, I know it's like sometimes for me it's hard because I know God tells me like, you know, you got to wait, but my flesh is like telling me, no, like go, go out there, you know, go, go get, find a wife, find a wife. But, um, because, um, because I see out there, like a lot of people are married and they have kids and, uh, and and seeing my brother married and yeah. my sister had kids, it's like now it's, sometimes I'm thinking like, okay, do okay, I feel like I really need to get a wife, but 
Yeah. Um, but so it's really tough for me because I know God is telling me to wait. Yeah. But um, I'm still not sure if God wants me to be single all my life. But sure. But if God wants me to have a wife, I know we'll be in His time and not my own time. But again, my flesh just keeps telling me no. Go out there, find a wife, have kids. Right. But um, because all this temptation in the world that I see pretty much every day. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Yeah, I feel that for sure. I remember um, re- uh, last year. Uh, was it last year or was it like early this year? I think it was actually early this year. I got to go to Texas and visit my father's side of the family. Um, but I also have two very good friends. Um, and uh, they live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area as well. Well, they live in the da- greater Dallas area. Um, and uh, I got to I got to see them. And they had uh, a less than one-year-old daughter that I got to meet for the first time, which was so cool. Like... Um, and th- these two people in particular were like, um, you know, me and my ex-wife, they were kind of like, uh, our couple friends and I love them both. Like they're both huge friends of mine. And, uh, I remember just, you know, thinking about thinking through it and I got to meet their daughter and their daughter was awesome. And, and it was mostly like a good thing and joyful, you know, um, just so cool to see them like getting out there and doing it. But at the same time, it was like, oh man, like this was the design that I had for my life too. So I would have a wife and that we'd be together and that we'd have a kid by now, you know? And, uh, I remember walking away from that and being like, wow, that was, um, awesome, but also a little hard because this, this was what I had planned and, and my life has turned out differently than I thought it was going to. Um, but I mean, yeah, that makes first Corinthians seven, a kind of a challenge for me as well because it's like having been married and then gone through like this divorce that like I didn't want and um I have less of a desire I would say to be with someone else at least for a while um but definitely like I will sometimes see people together and be like you know why can't like why can't I have that as well and that's kind of what you described as, you know, as well. And it seems, um, yeah, it seems kind of unfair to reference the conversation that we were working before. Um, in one respect, it seems unfair. But at the same time, this, this scripture in, in 7, right, is about being content with just having God, like having, having Jesus in our life, like that that's enough for us to be content and that's like a really hard it's a hard lesson like i'm sure you feel that too like it's contentment is really difficult would you would you agree with that yes yeah what do you think are maybe some ways that we could like just brainstorming right like what are some ways that we could maybe be learn to be more content with uh having the lord I would say, like, one way is to remember, like, basically remember the fruits of the Spirit, mm. which is in Galatians, I believe it's 5, 22 to 23, yeah. um, which is the fruits of the Spirit says to um, have meekness, temperance, show love, kindness, peace, compassion, um, and all that. Like, especially in uh, Ephesians 4, 32, which says to... 
uh, to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, showing compassion one another, even as Christ forgave you. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, I believe, it just all those ways is um, is basically some ways of how we can just follow God and just remember that um, that we are that we don't have to fight the battle alone. Yeah, I love that that thing about being alone because it's like we have the body of Christ, which we talked about already, and uh, we are designed for a life of love within the church. I mean, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about, right? Because it's like in 12, he's talking about how people are kind of bickering with each other over spiritual gifts, and he's like, you know, you guys are so interested in, like, service and doing all these, like, signs and wonders for God, but what it really is about is love, and, like, love looks out for the other person like it's not boastful like it's not something that is all about you it's something that's all about the other person and and i think we have to look for those relationships inside the church too where it's like you know i genuinely feel like i'm loved in this relationship and there's you know an intimacy there that it's not the same as if you as if you had um you know a romantic partner but it's um it helps to, you know, get us through um, not having something that we might want. Yeah, ultimately, like, while God does promise to be enough, he also is well aware of the fact that there are times when we will have desires that will go unmet. And I often look to the cross and just say, like, you know, Jesus came not to serve but to be served, right? Mm -hmm. In Philippians 2, right, he made himself of no reputation, and he went so low that he was willing to even die for us. And so to me, I don't know, maybe it seems conceited to say that, like, not having a, a partner at this time, like, is a form of suffering. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the fact that other people have something we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And it's not like we would desire for something that we're not desiring for anything bad. Like, there's nothing wrong with it, with, with wanting a, a spouse, right? But at the same time, it's like we don't have one right now, and that is difficult, you know. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I find that that's you know, it's like suffering a little bit. Like we, we can identify with Jesus. Jesus was single too, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure, like he was a guy. I'm sure he struggled with um, temptation as well, and I'm sure that he probably saw some women during his ministry that he was attracted to like i'm sure he had all of that and um you know he was probably strategically single i would say but at the same time he knows what it what it means to not um not have those desires fulfilled in um such close companionship with somebody you know so so yeah i kind of look at it that way too that helps helps me out a little bit ultimately it helps me to be just be grateful for what christ did you know yeah i agree I wonder too, though, um, you know, if you, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode that I put out too, where it's like, I don't necessarily, the so 1 Corinthians 7 is basically like, you know, if you are bound, seek not to be loosed. If you're loose, seek not to be bound. So it's like, don't try to change your circumstance. But I also don't think there's anything wrong with like keeping your eye out. You know, and just saying, like, this is something that I want, and if something comes along, like, if there's somebody that I meet that um, that we really, uh, you know, click or whatever, 
then um, I think it's okay to to date and stuff. It's not like saying like don't don't date or like wait until you have a specific word from God about this one person. Um, I feel like it's more like don't be consumed with this idea that like I have to be mm-hmm. with somebody or I have to leave somebody. Um, if you're if you're in a marriage, like there's God is enough for us in every stage. But if we find somebody, then I don't. I think Paul even makes concession for that. He's like, you know, if they want to get married, let them marry. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with with keeping your eye out. So uh, we've talked about some questions, but what what else is there? What's like the unanswered questions that you still have about First Corinthians? Like, what's the uh, what are some of those um, question mark passages that maybe we didn't get a chance to discuss yet? Why did some people not believe in the resurrection of Christ? Mm, that's a good question. It's kind of weird to us today as people that grew up with this message about Christ rising from the dead, right? So in particular in Corinthians, do you have the reference in front of you? Let's see if we can read this thing. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, for I passed on, this is verse 3, for I passed on to you as most important that I received that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Then he appeared to the other five, and he keeps going, right? For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, but I persecute the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he's saying, like, you know, the resurrection helped. Um, now, the question that they asked is actually in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And um, that is pretty wild, right? Because Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1 that he came with the core message of the gospel, that Christ was died, that he was buried, and that he raised again. And um, so how can you be a Christian, the follower of Christ, and say that there's no resurrection because you believe in this guy that was raised from the dead? Um, but actually, the it's interesting because we as, you know, 20-whatever, 21st century, right, 21st century Christians are like, yeah, that um, we we believe in a guy that was raised from the dead. We also will be raised from the dead. We'll live in an eternity with him. Like that, they go hand in hand for us today. But we also have a context for like the beyond spirituality because in between, you know, 1 AD, the first century AD, and now, there's been a lot of different ideas about life after death. Like we've heard about mythology we've heard about like reincarnation since then we've heard about like other forms of uh, life after death like um, you have in the muslim religion we've got um, stuff like confucianism we've got things like pantheism where like you become kind of one with the earth after death and there's all this stuff and there's all these movies about like die like we had that pixar movie soul where the guy like died and his soul got sucked up and we've got like this, all this stuff, you know, it's very mainstream to idea to have this idea that like there's life after death, you know? Well, back then it actually wasn't terribly common to believe that there was life after death. And most, most scholars would say, and this is funny because there's life after death kind of talked about in the old Testament, 
Not as much as the New Testament, certainly. The New Testament's constantly talking about life after death. But a lot of like ancient Jewish people or people that were surrounding there didn't necessarily believe that there was life after death. It was kind of like a minority uh, view. In fact, if you remember, there's that one argument in the gospel between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're trying to trip Jesus up. And the Sadducees come and they ask Jesus, hey, um, if, you know, if a man was married, husband dies, the, the, the next in line marries her, because this is how ancient custom was. He dies next in line. Basically, she goes through four different husbands, four brothers. Uh, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus is like, he doesn't really answer the question. Instead, what he says to the Sadducees was, you guys don't even believe in the resurrection. Why are you asking me this question? And really, it was a way to trick Jesus, and Jesus kind of saw through it because Jesus knew that the Sadducees actually didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees were the traditional people in um, uh, first century Judaism. Like they were the ones that believed in the traditional way of Judaism. The Pharisees were progressive. The Pharisees actually did believe in uh, life after death, and that's kind of when that became more accepted in, in Judaism. But yeah, first century Judaism wasn't very popular to, to believe in life after death. And then if you look at like Greek and Roman mythology, um, they kind of did believe in life after death a little bit um, diff in a different way. I don't, I, I'm not well read enough to say whether they believe that everybody had life after death. Um, but a lot of times when, um, when you read the Bible, they have um, this word uh, Gehenna. And um, that's interpreted as grave. So when, when they talk about going to the grave, we think of the grave and we think of like the Grim Reaper, you know, and like him like taking your soul to hell or whatever. Um, a lot of Jewish people thought that your life ended in the grave. Like you died and you were buried and that's it. Like you were done. So, um, so it wasn't terribly weird that the Corinthians were not believing in the resurrection of the dead or that some of them were. It was actually kind of normal at that time. Um, but what is weird is like, how can you believe in a guy where the biggest claim about Christ, one of, if not the biggest claim about Christ is that he raised from the dead. How can you believe that that happened, but not believe that God's going to raise you from the dead? And that's kind of what Paul's saying in uh, chapter 15. What do you think about that? I believe that makes sense. Yeah. 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 What else? What are some other questions you might have? Um, what does it mean when people speak in tongues? Like, mm. that's a good one. We I actually had this conversation um a couple podcasts ago too with um First Corinthians fourteen, and we were talking about how it kind of seems in fourteen that there's two tongues speaking going on. So we you know we go, we grew up in an evangelical church, so we have this evangelical background and um um. It's uh, charismatic in theology, but not necessarily in practice is how like I describe my upbringing. Like we don't necessarily say that there's certain gifts that you don't exercise anymore. Um, but, but we believe that there, there are, but we don't see them a lot in our church. You know what I mean? Like healing services and things like that. We don't do a ton of that kind of stuff in our church. But, um, but theologically, we say... God can do whatever he wants to do. So that's like the underpinning of every conversation about spiritual gifts. I think that should be there is that God is God. He's bigger than us. He can do whatever he wants to do. And so that means that he could empower 
one person to do something and another person to do something else. And that's the whole premise of the body metaphor that we talked about earlier, is that we don't all do the same things. And I think that's even true church to church. Like we need different kinds of churches out there. And that's important. And I, I, our church would echo that point a lot because we like to partner with other churches that aren't necessarily similar to us in, in every way, you know. And so, um, so yeah, that's, where I, that's where I would start because I think that's where every conversation about spiritual gifts has to start. Second place to start is our understanding traditionally of tongues has been the understanding that's in Acts at Pentecost. And that's when the disciples got the tongues of fire above their head and they were speaking and everybody in the crowd heard what they were saying in their own language. And um, so we, the way that I've heard most people describe speaking in tongues is when you're speaking a language that you don't know. Mm. So like, I don't know, all I can say in Spanish is like, hola. (laughs) (laughs) But if I started speaking fluent Spanish to one of the Spanish speakers in our church, that would be like an instance of the gifts of tongues. Now, a lot of um, charismatic people would say, well, I tongues is actually a way that I praise God, and it's a tongue, it's what's called an unknown tongue, as what Paul's words for it are in 1 Corinthians 12, or uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. And it, what, what that means is not necessarily a, a language that you don't know, but like unintelligible words, like words that don't mean anything necessarily. Um, but it's it's like a language that people speak and they feel like their heart is kind of crying out to God. So it's a form of worship. And uh, Paul straight up says, like, I pray in tongues. He, he like, says it. in the. Let me show you where it is. Um, it is... Here we go. Uh, starting in verse 13. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with my spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I'll sing praise with the spirit. I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the same spirit, how will the outsider say amen? Um, and uh, in verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in another tongue. And so Paul straight up says, like, I speak in tongues. And I think that he's not talking about speaking a language that he doesn't know there. I think he's actually talking about some sort of prayer language that he uses at home that where he's maybe saying words, but he's not necessarily understanding what he's saying. You know what I mean? It's kind of like crying like your emotion to the Lord. The debate would be whether or not that's appropriate in church Um, because in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is like, hey, the purpose of your gathering is to encourage one another. So if you're saying something that nobody in the room can understand, like how are you encouraging somebody? And even prayer, like if you pray in another tongue, you should pray that you interpret because if you're like, you want to be encouraged by what you're saying, even just you on your own. Um, but uh, but Paul's not ruling out the possibility that people could be speaking in tongues and uh, doing so, especially in prayer, I would say, that 1 Corinthians 14 makes room for that. But the primary idea of 1 Corinthians 14 is that our gatherings need to be organized in such a way that we're all uplifting one another, which means they got to be understandable. So that's that's where I would go with that question. What do you think about that? I believe that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think that we have to be really careful when we have conversations like this because 
right full circle back to our first conversation, we talked about, you know, these parts that we often see as less honorable, which I do feel like maybe people that we disagree with, we could easily see as less honorable. He's like, you have to clothe those parts of the body with more honor because in the economy of the kingdom, like we are all needed. So we have to be careful not to, I, what I would describe as quenching the spirit in somebody else. So we have to be careful not to, not to put people down if they're trying to use their spiritual gift. People might need guidance. I'm not saying we don't guide. Like if somebody stands up in the middle of our service and is kind of making a ruckus, even if they're claiming to use like a spiritual gift, well, that's not really going to be helpful for, for, the, for the church, you know, um, in a lot of situations. So yeah, maybe we need some guidance, but I'm going to try to get with that person and say like, hey, what were you trying to do? Like, what's, what's the idea here? Because I don't, I don't want to quench what the Spirit is doing in you if the Spirit is doing something in you. Um, and uh, I certainly don't want to put down like whole denominations and church services that do things differently than me because that we need those people. Um, I believe I just have one more question. Cool. Which is, why did the people of Corinth take the Lord's Supper the wrong way? Yeah, that, dude, that is the question that I approached 1 Corinthians with primarily. That was the big reason why I was studying this from the first place. Um, because I, I do think that's like a really important, I mean, Paul straight up says like, dude, people are dying because they're taking the Lord's Supper wrong. Like, did you catch that in first Corinthians? That's, that's surprising, yeah. <laughs> right? That's pretty wild. Um, yeah, dude. Actually, I think it is 11, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. First Corinthians 11. Yeah. And, and we read from first Corinthians every single time we take the Lord's Supper, right? Um, yeah. And that's tech, that's usually the the, the, the part that we use um, to kind of guide guide the thing. But so um, the best I can say is that there's a couple clues in the text because honestly we don't we're we're not told that explicitly. Like there's no answer to that question necessarily. Um, so there, there's there's a couple things. First of all, in verse 18, Paul says, "Hey, I, I hear that there's divisions among you." So we start there, right? There's divisions. Um. And then uh, in verse 21, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper so that one, one person's hungry and another gets drunk. And uh, I think that's the big thing. So um, there's a couple ways maybe to interpret this. First of all, it means that they weren't sharing whatever they were supposed to be sharing, right? Um, and they're dividing in some way. So there's a couple things that they could be dividing over. And uh, I'll share the one that I like the best first. So I think this is um, uh, this is my favorite one. So first of all, it's it's likely that when they were taking the Lord's Supper here, it wasn't just like a moment in their service. Like they didn't have a service like we had, right? It was like they were meeting around in like a living room, like somebody's living room. It was probably 20 or less people. Um, and they were getting around a table and they were eating with each other. And perhaps during that meal, there was a moment where they um, specifically, you know, did like a toast and took the Lord's Supper, how we might take it. Or, and I don't even think that's necessary. It might just be that the whole meal together was considered the Lord's Supper as well. And um, the thing, the, the, the thing is it's not normal in an ancient world. It's not normal here in today's world either, but it's not, especially not normal in an ancient world to have different people of socioeconomic status around a table so like if let's say you and i are like middle class 
there was no middle class back then, so maybe that's a bad example. But let's say they're high class, right? Rich person. If there's somebody down the road that's a Christian that's coming to your house and they're poor, never would there be uh, would it be appropriate to have them eat at your table. But at the Lord's Supper, meaning the gathering of believers, we're called to have everybody around the table. Even if you had slaves, like maybe you had slaves in your house and you were um, hosting, hosting the Lord's Supper, like your slaves would eat with you, which is crazy. Like that's not normal in the ancient world. So slave people, free people, men, women, children, all those people around the table were supposed to be around the table. But I think uh, I've heard many interpretations where what's happening here is that there's favoritism and the people that are rich are eating the food and the people that are poor are, are not eating the food. They're not sharing with each other. So the rich people are bringing food for themselves. Or even they would have Lord's Supper at a time when people that were working couldn't make it. And so they would go hungry because all the food would be gone by the time they got to the gathering. Um, that could be it as well. Um, but I think the key is there was some sort of division. So even Jesus, there's this moment in Jesus' ministry where he says, if you're going to bring a gift to the altar and you remember that you have a problem with your brother, leave your gift aside, make it right with your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. You know what I'm talking about, right? That story? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I kind of see this as that too. It's like, how are you going to make division in the church? Like, how are you going to not be united with one another and then take the Lord's Supper, which is this act of uniting yourself with Christ? That doesn't make sense to me. So whatever way they were experiencing that division, um, whether it be, you know, eating all the food before the workers got there or um, only eating their own food instead of sharing with each other so that the people that were poor only had a little bit to eat and the people that were rich had too much to eat, um, whatever, whatever it is, um, there was some kind of division. They weren't honoring each other, and yet they were trying to take the Lord's Supper. And uh, Paul is like, yo, if this is communion with the body and blood of Christ, right? If, if we are entering into Christ's body, being knitted together with Christ, then that means that you and I are both doing that at the same time. And so how can I have a problem with you and cause problems with you and then claim to be part of Christ's body? Well, that's not, that's not how it works. You've got to, you have to love Jesus and you have to remember Jesus, but you have to love your neighbor and you have to honor them. Right. And, uh, mm. and so you guys need to be united when you take the Lord's supper. And if you're not, there's consequences. Mm. Pretty wild though. Right. Yeah, it is pretty wild. <laughs> pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For Paul to say like, Hey, you're, you not doing this right. Like people are dying <laughs> because of that. That's pretty crazy. I don't think we take it as seriously as they would have back then. That's one of the beautiful things about Corinthians though. Like this is, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to start my podcast with this, because my whole thing with like unison, I don't know if you listened to the original one podcast yet or not, but like the original one where I was talking about, you know, I like that word unison because it's like all of us come together. We're all like praising God in unison. Like we're all singing the same thing. Um, but our, the, the color of our voices are different. Like there's men, there's women, there's high voices, there's low voices. There's, there's different um, timbres would be like the music word there. There's different timbres. We're coming together and we're we're praising God, and um, that's what that's kind of what this podcast is all about. Like, how can we be united to each other and united to Christ at the same time? And I think this is an opportunity for Corinthians to talk about that. Yeah, I do believe that. Yeah. Yeah. 
What do you think is like the best way to take communion? I think the best way to take communion is is to pray to God and just it's like what we've been doing at this church, which is um just to pray to God first and just to confess like um just any hidden sin that you haven't confessed to God, like confess it to him first and then um and then just ask God if um if if um you know am I ready to take the Lord's Supper after that and see what happens and I and I guess if God says no then you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper at that time. Yeah. And um what do you think it would look like for God to say no in that moment? I think it would look like um I don't know. I think I think it would just be that um if God said no and you take the Lord's Supper anyways, then there might be um maybe um probably like spiritual it may not be physical but maybe it will be spiritual harm that would be done to you mm. if if god <coughs> told you no and you still take the lord's supper even after he mm. said no maybe like remorse or something yeah 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 totally totally i feel like if you're I like I like what you said there because I I do like the self exam and it's in Corinthians the 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 examination then right so um, mm-hmm. in verse twenty eight let a person examine himself in this way let him eat the the bread and drink the cup and when he says let a person examine himself in this way I think he's referring back to the stuff about divisions so a lot of times I mean I guess this is just a tip I I would say a lot you know certainly evangelical churches but I think even uh, even in like a Catholic setting, um, before you take communion, you, you're you're probably going to be given a moment to prepare yourself for that. And a lot of times, the question that I'm asking is, God, how have I sinned against you? And illuminate that, and I want to repent for specific sins, actually. And that's one thing. Like this last time we took communion, I was like, Yep, messed up yesterday. Did this and this. I got to stop doing that. Like, God, give me the strength to repent. Like, you died for me, and I'm not taking it seriously when I act that way. And so um, give me, you know, give me the strength to beat this stuff. Um, and, and yeah, that's so, so I, I think there's that. But I also think there's a question that we need to ask, God, how have I wronged someone else? Mm. Is there somebody else that I need to make my relationship right with them? Um, because com- I'm not just communing with you in this moment. I'm actually communing with the church. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. Like examine yourself, but not just examine yourself in reference to God, but examine yourself with reference to other people too. Um, so I think that's that's my biggest takeaway coming from uh, from First Corinthians is not so much a practice. Like I I was worried that maybe we were taking the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. Like the way we were trying to take the Lord's Supper was like not the way that the Bible asked us to take it. And I definitely don't think that the Bible has a prescription for exactly how it has to be taken. Um, but but I think that the key is unity with not only God, but also with other people. And we got to make sure that that's happening. Um, and, and in every context um, that we take the Lord's Supper, we've got to make sure that 
we're keeping the church unified and then that's mentioned and promoted during the process of communion so that's where i'm at well thank you so much dude this has been a cool conversation you did a good good job thinking through corinthians and uh having your having your passages ready um i appreciate the the work you put in ahead of time here you're welcome thank you for having me yeah well um thank you guys for listening like i said this was our final interview in the first corinthians series so look out um over the next couple weeks for so maybe a wrap-up episode on first corinthians then we're going to move on to something different um and uh it'll be probably significantly different actually maybe go into some one-shot episodes i'm excited for for what's next so be sure to uh listen ahead and uh, thank you so much for tuning into this one You've been listening to the Unison Church Podcast. If you're a Christ follower, I hope this has encouraged you to grow closer, not only to him, but also to his family. May we unite in our allegiance to him and raise our voices together to worship Yahweh. If you're not a Christ follower, I hope that this has represented Christ well to you. May this spark your curiosity towards Jesus and his people. In any case, I hope you'll connect with us again here on the podcast and share it with a friend. You can find links in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to us through other ways as well. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon.